Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 10 this evening. Matthew chapter 10. We just finished looking at Matthew 8 and 9. Still somewhat undecided about how just far to go into this book, but chapter 10 pairs very naturally with 8 and 9. So we certainly want to spend a few weeks looking at Matthew chapter 10. So turn there, please, and I'll actually read the last verses of chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. Again, I'm thankful that Dr. Taylor could come this morning. Um, the message was a blessing to me, as I think it was to many of you. I know that text has brought me a lot of comfort over the years of God's sufficient grace. So I trust that was a good word, a word in due season, as Scripture says, forever you may be. So Matthew chapter 9, let's begin with verse 35, and I will read into chapter 10, where I will end at verse 8. So let us hear God's word. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the name of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Amen for God's word and let me ask once more for his help. Pray with me. Father, again, the entrance of your word brings light. Without you we can do nothing. The Greek seekers who came and said, we would see Jesus. All these texts come to mind when we open your word, that we need your help, that Christ is the center of the scriptures, and he is the one we want to see with the eyes of faith as we behold him in the word. Think of the power of your word, that it, it cuts to the inner person, it breaks the rock in two, it brings the dead to life, it creates spiritual life, and it sanctifies, it comforts, and convicts, and it's pure and precious, true, and the word of life that we need. And this is indeed the power that we have in ministry, in church, to do the work you've called us to do, and to bless your people tonight, to give them a word in season, to direct us in how to live for you, and how to worship you, and how to love you and others. So do that tonight. Fill me with your spirit that I may proclaim your word. Bless Aaron as he teaches the youth, and may they find direction from your word, and, and will they live for Christ when his ministry to them bring forth good fruit in their lives. We ask all these things in the matchless and mighty name 
of Jesus. Amen. Well, we come tonight in Matthew 10 to the second discourse section in Matthew. So Matthew organizes his gospel around five different blocks of teaching material. So if you read the gospels, you read Jesus's words. They're all throughout all the gospels. But Matthew particularly groups several of his sayings into long discourses that have certain themes. So we've already seen the Sermon on the Mount, how God's kingdom people live. Tonight is the second, the discourse on discipleship. If we were to go later into the book, you have the parables of the kingdom in chapter 13. We've preached through that passage before. In chapter 18, you have the discourse on the church. And then finally, in chapters 23, 24, and 25, the woes against the Pharisees and the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem leading up to eventually the final judgment, the well-known Olivet Discourse. We looked at that in Mark when we preached through that book. So in the first discourse, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught the authoritative message of the kingdom. This is what my kingdom citizens look like. This is how you enter. This is how you live. This is the law and the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And then having amazed the people, he went down and we saw in chapters 8 and 9 the authoritative deeds of the kingdom. The power of the kingdom coupled still with its message. And now, tonight in chapter 10, Jesus commissions his disciples to share in that mission with him. He has taught, he has acted, and now he says, all right, you, my 12 disciples, you're going to go out and you will be my agents. Agents of the very words and deeds of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe even in reading the passage tonight, you heard some phrases. You're like, oh, that's just like what Jesus said. That's the same actions Jesus was doing. They are to be his agents in the ongoing mission. And not only that, but in formally recognizing the 12, that, that opening section of chapter 10, where we had the list of the 12 apostles, the formal recognition of this group, you have Jesus taking another step in structuring this new community and showing who belongs to the kingdom of heaven and how God will manifest his kingdom in this time. It's like the calling of Abraham. You, you had people saved since the Garden of Eden. God announced the, the first gospel there in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve. He proclaimed the first gospel to the first sinners. And people were being saved since Adam and Eve. But when God calls Abraham, things take a very definitive step forward. Now you have the people of God, the saved, being organized into a community. A visible covenant community. You have the first sacrament there with circumcision. A mark that will identify those in this community and be handed on to their children for successive generations. Well, this is kind of like that. Jesus is calling people. The crowds are following. He's giving the message. And now he's going to start to structure this kingdom. We'll see more in chapter 16 and 18. But here the kingdom takes a big step forward. This is where you find the authority and the mission of the Messiah amongst his people led by his ordained officers. Now having said that, if you were to read through this 
chapter. It's very relevant from the outside. However, this chapter can sometimes seem distant. It can seem a little removed from us because of some of the statements that Jesus makes. Statements that relate specifically to the disciples' initial preaching tour. For example, the last half of verse 5, he says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. This preaching tour that Jesus is sending the disciples out on, it's going to be a short-term preaching tour. It's just going to be at this point for Israelites. And so you may read that and be like, well, what, what does that have to do with me? I mean, I mean do, I, do we even know any Jews? There's some, I, I think I looked up, about 500 Jews estimated to live in Spartanburg County. So this can seem remote. I mean, we're all Gentiles, and, and we're not rubbing shoulder with Jewish people or Samaritans. So that and some of the other statements can make it seem like this was a disciples thing, this was a Jesus time thing. What does it have to do with me? Well, as we'll see as we work through the passage... Other statements that Jesus, is, Jesus makes, they indicate a further mission. They indicate that what Jesus is saying here in chapter 10 not only speaks to the disciples, but will speak to successive generations. In other words, he's using this opportunity to instruct the disciples specifically, but to also go ahead and lay down a charter and a manifesto that will be for future generations. So, for example, look at verse 18. Jesus says, On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. So he just said, don't go to the Gentiles. But the kings and governors, well, they're going to call you into court so you can be a witness to them and to the other Gentiles. So you see how some of what Jesus says is for right then and there. But then some of what Jesus says is going to echo throughout time. It's going to echo to the successive generations of the church. The initial disciples will realize in recording these words, Ah, okay, these are instructions we are to hand down for future generations, and thus they will have relevance for them. Keep in mind, we have not only the recorded words of Jesus, and they're accurately recorded, we can window into something Jesus said to the disciples. But they're also being recorded by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at a much later time when Jesus has already gone back to heaven and he's writing for a church. So he has to capture both audiences, what Jesus said then and how it echoes to future readers. And so therefore, in this chapter, we find how Jesus manifests his authority in our mission. Jesus' authority, our mission. How do they connect? Because we see in this chapter how he manifests his authority in our mission. So we'll work through the whole chapter over the course of two or three Sunday nights. And we'll start tonight by looking at two sections of this talk. First, the end of verse 9, where Jesus tells us first to pray for the mission. Before he sends out the twelve, we get a setting and a context, an audience that kind of sets up the context of this whole discourse. And the setup, the, the frame, is that we are to pray for the mission. So look again at verse 35, where we read there, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. 
This is really a summary of everything that Jesus is doing. You get several summary statements like this in Matthew. And it reminds me of what John says. You know, the whole world couldn't contain all the books that could be written of all the things that Jesus said and did. We have in the Gospels just selected incidents to tell a particular story that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. Jesus has been going out doing all sorts of things like this, and we're just giving little windows into parts of that larger ministry. If you were to glance over at chapter 10, verse 1, you'll see very similar language used to describe what he will send the apostles out to do. Chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So here's what Jesus is doing. And now the time has come for him to commission his disciples to continue that mission. What they do should be seen as a continuation of what Jesus is doing. He acts through them, just as by his grace he acts through us to this day. Verse 36 starts to give us a window into Jesus' motive and his heart for the people. We read there that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He's already been showing compassion by healing by throwing out demons, but here we see an even deeper and more fundamental concern for the people. A compassion that arises because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And those verbs, they may imply an, an oppression or an exhaustion or, or maybe just a lack of direction or maybe all of these together. Just that the people of God scattered and in need of a shepherd to lead them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They need the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. And then they need under shepherds who will lead them to the good waters. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, it said that Jesus was a ruler who would shepherd my people Israel. And in the next chapter, in chapter 10, verse 6, when he sends out the disciples, he sends them to the lost sheep of Israel. We could turn up a whole list of passages in the Old Testament where God looks at his people and views them as oppressed and scattered sheep because their leaders have failed them. Their shepherds haven't fed them and led them to the good waters, corrected them when necessary, and looked out for their spiritual care. Of course, in Matthew 23, Jesus will really strongly lower the boom, just give it to Israel's religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, because they failed to exercise biblical, gracious, proper care for the people. But Jesus has compassion on them. He doesn't come on the scene beating on the sheep. He's got strong words. He saves those for the Pharisees. He looks at the people of God, and he has compassion, this warm compassionate response that acts to meet a need. One author even translates it colloquially, but he translates it as Jesus' heart went out when he saw the people. It was an emotion, but it was an emotion that led to an action. You don't want to be emotional in an undiscerning way, but there are certain situations that demand a certain emotional response. If you're not rendering that response, you're not seeing the situation correctly. And this is one of those. Jesus sees his people in need. So his heart goes out to them 
to provide shepherds for them. He'll do that in the very next chapter. But before, before he sends them out, he tells them first to pray. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord to send out workers. These people are a harvest. In one image, they're a sheep needing a leader. Now in a new image, they're a harvest ready to be reaped. Using another image, when he called the disciples, he said, you're going to fish for people. Well, now it's time to go out and fulfill that role. Gather the sheep. Fish for the people. Bring in the harvest. Go out and pray. Pray that God will send reapers. You're going to be the reapers, but before you go, you need to pray for reapers. So before we embark on any work for God, let us be a people who pray for God to bring about that work. But interestingly, the ones who pray are then sent. So be careful. If you pray for God to meet a need in the church, he may send you to be the meter of that need. Let us be people who pray. Let us be people who are ready to enter into God's work. Pray for the mission. And then secondly tonight, looking into chapter 10, the first several verses of chapter 10, let us also prepare for the mission. But look at that under two angles. In order to prepare for the mission, Jesus first selects his disciples. In verses 1 through 4, you have the formal recognition of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and the listing of their actual names. Now, whenever I talk about disciples, and in order to apply this to us, I do like to make a recognition in the Bible, or I like to distinguish between capital D disciples and lowercase d disciples. And the same holds with apostles. So capital D disciples, that's the 12. They have a unique authority, a particular responsibility. As Dr. Taylor mentioned this morning, the new city, the new heaven, their names are written on the 12 Gates, and, and I won't provide an answer for who that twelfth name will be. But they had a unique place in God's redemptive purposes. But you also have in the Bible, this isn't just application. These people are directly referred to. You have lowercase d disciples who are, they're more specific than the general crowds. They're not just people who are curious the people that Jesus rebuked, oh, you just want more food. No, there is a larger group of people, men and women, who show loyalty to Jesus and follow him. So again, Dr. Taylor mentioned this morning, Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas. This is in the first chapter of Acts. Remember, they had to find someone who had been with them from the beginning, who had been an eyewitness to the deeds. I believe in Luke's Gospel, you have a similar chapter to Matthew 10, but there in Luke's gospel, Jesus sends out 70, not just 12. So there was a larger group of disciples that followed Jesus and were loyal to, loyal to him, and some of them from the very beginning. So he commissions the 12. You'll have a specific job. You'll get specific powers. But that's not the only disciples. Now think again at the cross. So many of all of his disciples abandon him. Some of the women are faithful, and they observe him and even help him close by. So you have a larger group of people who are loyal to Jesus. And they, they come up again in the Bible as disciples. They're referred to in some of the letters as apostles. Well, here, this focus is on the capital D, disciples. But as I will say throughout chapter 10, 
Much of what is said will also apply to lowercase d disciples. Some of this is for the twelve going out right then and there. But some of it also is for you and me who serve Jesus in our day. And you may say, well, how do you know which is which? Well, what you certainly want to avoid is you, you don't want to decide just based on what you like, right? I don't like that verse. That was definitely for the original 12 apostles. Hey, that sounds like something that's doable. That's for me. We need a little better method than that. But I think as you read the chapter and you have that distinction in mind, it will become clearer to you which is for them and which is for us. In, in other words, there are some situations so specific that it's just hard to translate them to our current situation. Whether there are other situations where you can see the general principles a little easier. Let me give you one example. In verse 8, chapter 10, Jesus says, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Now I would argue that is something, a power he gave specifically to the original twelve. To those who established the work of the church in the first century. Why do I say that? Two reasons. One, that's what Jesus is doing right then and there. To manifest his authority. To show that he is God. In order to further prove that, he gives that power to the disciples. Only God can hand on these kinds of powers. So if they do the works, it only shows his authority that much greater. And establishes his message. Another reason I would limit that to the original 12 is because it's common in God's history to confine miracles to certain times. So, for example, Moses did miracles. Joshua experienced some miracles. But then you don't see miracles happening for several hundred years. David, not a miracle worker. Solomon, not a miracle worker. As the kingdom of God settled into disunity and problems, the prophets like Elijah and Elisha rose up. They did miracles, but then Isaiah didn't necessarily do miracles. And I don't mean they didn't see miracles, but I mean God threw their hands as a spiritual gift, enabling them to be miracle workers. We don't see that with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and most of the prophets. So it's not unusual at all in redemptive history to confine miracles to certain seasons. And that's what I would do uh, with these gifts and powers here. They were for those original 12. But look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you who speaking. It will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That, you can see, is much more translatable, isn't it? What follower of Christ does not find themselves in a situation where they need God's wisdom right then and there? They can't sit down and open their Bible and do a Bible study. God, I need you to tell me what to say here. And the Spirit of God comes to your aid. I don't want to base things on experience, but I also bet you, many of you have probably experienced this at some point in your life. Where just God gave you the wisdom, the strength, the courage to do what needed to be done. It's a lot easier to see how something like that translates than what we see there in verse 8. So I think that will help you read your Bible and read this chapter and know what to apply. So back to the commissioning of the 12. They've already been called. 
They've been walking with Jesus for some time now. You can read it in chapters 4 and 9. But here, a step forward is taken. They are commissioned as Jesus' representatives. His representatives on mission. And why 12, by the way? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel. God promised to come. He said, I will regather my scattered people. I will regather and renew my people. I will fulfill my promises to them. So here it is, a renewed. I don't even always use the phrase, do Israel. because It's not like God's throwing away the old and starting over from scratch. No, it's renewed. Continuity with the old, even if there is a new form to what God is doing. This is the fulfillment. This is the reconstitution of Israel, and they will be an extension of Jesus' ministry. So in order to prepare for the mission, he selects the disciples, and then here's the other thing we'll look at tonight. He instructs the disciples. And I'm thinking specifically the instructions that he gives them in verses 5 through 15. And if we were going to try to identify, okay, what in the chapter is them Specifically, what in the chapter is easier to apply to us? 5 through 15 is probably more specifically focusing on the disciples. Verse 16 is where you see the turn to the more general Christian witness. Nonetheless, I think there's some principles that we can see here. So let's just look at this aspect of the 12 on their mission to Galilee. Let me just break that down into three uh, ideas here in the rest of our time tonight. First, who will be the audience for the mission? Verse 6 says, go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So the immediate audience for the 12 on mission is the lost sheep of Israel. We've already seen from Matthew's gospel, he has shaped his gospel, especially those opening chapters, but it's really all throughout. He has shaped this gospel to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. He will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so it makes sense that on one level, his disciples would first minister to Israel. That's not saying it will never be different, but it's got to start there. They are the people who have these promises made. They are the people to whom God promised to send his salvation. So like Paul says, it's the gospel is to the Jew first, then to the Greek. Uh, when Jesus goes out later in chapter 15, I think it's the Syrophoenician woman, where she comes and says, make my daughter well. And Jesus says, no, I only am sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, having said all that, it's interesting that Jesus would focus on Israel alone here because he has shown surprising openness to Gentiles. Remember what we saw in chapter 8? The centurion who had the great faith. And Jesus said, you know, on the last day, all these people are going to come from the east and west and join me at the feast and the Jews will be cast out. He's already said, I'm open to Gentiles. Why suddenly tighten it up here? Well, I would just say a few things about that. One, this is not a total ban on talking to non-Jews. It is a limitation of ministry to a Jewish area. So Galilee was surrounded on all sides by Gentiles except the southern border, which bordered Samaria. So he's saying, go to the Jewish area. You might come into contact with some non-Jews. He didn't say you can talk to them. 
go here first. Why go there first? Because there is a Jewish priority, as I've already said, in God's promises. Through them, salvation would come to the world. And so Jesus is trying to say, look, they're lost sheep. They need to be saved too. Their Jewish heritage does not give them any advantage in, in terms of getting saved. They, they need to hear the good news. They need to believe the gospel. So they have a priority. It's not as other theologians say, you know, he went to Israel and that didn't work out. So plan B, he goes to Gentiles. And hardly anybody even phrases it that way these days. No, it's through them salvation would come to the world. Through their rejection, the good news would go to the world. So it's not a total ban. It's part of God's plan. And how does Matthew's gospel end? With the Great Commission. Go into all the world. So what Jesus says here is temporary. This is just you 12. I want you to take a short-term preaching tour and make sure the people in Galilee hear the good news of the gospel. And God's plan will go forward beyond that to all the nations of the world. So who's the audience for the mission? Israel. What's the nature of the mission? Verses 7 and 8, word and deed. I want you to say what I've said, and I want you to do what I have done. As you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, etc. Again, that's everything we have just seen in chapters 8 and 9, and the Sermon on the Mount as well. Do what I did, say what I said. Now, what's interesting, if you peek at the back of the chapter just for a moment, just verse 40, Jesus says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And as he goes on to say, the opposite is true as well. How they respond to you indicates ultimately how they respond to me. If they don't listen to you, it's because they're not listening to me and they're not listening to my father. But if they listen to you, well, then they're hearing me. And they're hearing my father. Go out, speak those authoritative words, accompany them with authoritative deeds. You freely received, so go out and freely give. Apparently, some teachers in the ancient world wanted not only board and lodging, they wanted some fees as well for the things they came to say. Well, Jesus says, you just receive freely and you give freely. Paul at times even refused to receive anything lest the integrity of the gospel be compromised. And then what provisions does Jesus give them for the mission? Well, that's verses 9 through 15. We can summarize it very simply. Travel light. You know what he said there at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? That, you know, the birds, God cares for them. The flowers, God cares for them. Well, I expect you to do the same. Now, when he says there in verse 9, do not get any gold or silver, one commentator says this, it does not naturally refer to what they are to carry, but rather to fundraising and acquiring special equipment for the journey. So again, we don't want to take the teeth out of what Jesus says and make it more acceptable, but we don't want to make it harder than it really is. It may be that what he's simply saying here is, don't delay don't go raise funds. Don't go make all these preparations. Take what you got and go. Think of the would-be follower of Jesus in chapter 8. Hey, I want to follow you. Let me just go bury my father first. Let me just finish off some things in my life. Jesus says, no. 
time to go. It's probably what he's telling them now. You don't need to go raise funds. You just need to go. It's going to be a short-term mission trip, so just go. Don't put off the work of God's kingdom. And he will also tell them to depend on hospitality. Verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person, stay at their house until you leave. Find people in these villages who welcome the message of God's kingdom and stay with them. Jesus' words would have spread somewhat already, so find people who are agreeable to the message and stay with them. But, but you're going to have to depend on that. You're going to have to trust that God will provide that. And, and on one hand, that would have been a little more common in their culture. P people expected a little bit more for travelers to show up and they would receive them into their home. They weren't as independent and spread out as we are uh, in our modern day. So, so on one hand, that, that would have been a little more normal. And at the same time, they will have to be trusting God. Again, remember the other would-be follower of Jesus? Hey, I'll go with you wherever you want me to go. Really? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Get in the boat. Let's go. He didn't go. Maybe he wasn't ready to trust God to provide. But Jesus says, go out. Preach the good news. And as they receive the good news, give them a blessing. But if they reject you, they will incur God's judgment. Why? Because your ministry is an extension of my ministry. And if they reject you, by the way, that chilling statement of verse 15, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. That these people are going to get better light than Sodom and Gomorrah got. Sodom and Gomorrah aren't getting off the hook. Scripture is clear on that. But these people have been primed, they've been prepared. They've been preached to. They get the fullest revelation of the message staring them in the face. And if they won't receive that, then it will be worse for them on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. What can we take away from it? I'll just mention these in clo closing. One, pray for the health of God's kingdom. Pray that more lost sheep will be found as God continues his mission in our day. As I've already warned you, be careful, you might be part of the solution. But pray and go as God sends you. Two, in whatever area of life God calls you to serve, He will meet your needs. So maybe He's not sending you on a preaching tour of Roebuck tomorrow, or Pauline, or any other part of Spartanburg County. But you'll go to jobs, you'll have something to do in your home, you're possibly part of a family, you are part of a community. Whatever God is calling you to serve, however He's calling you to serve, he will meet your needs. You don't have to rely on your own resources. You don't have to rely on your own wisdom. And you certainly never have to sin or do wrong in order to do what God has called you to do. So just trust Him. I don't have all the answers, but God does. Trust Him. And thirdly, as you are able, represent Jesus as His ambassador. We all represent Him one way or another. There is a judgment to come. We want people to hear good news. So represent that as you are able to those around you. Let me pray and give thanks. Father in heaven, again, thank you for Jesus' mission. A mission that came to seek and to save that which was lost. Thank you for saving our souls, making us whole spiritually, and loving us to the uttermost. For you laid down your life, that you by your blood might purchase your church. 
to give us confidence in that mission. Do that mission here in Roebuck. As you're doing it over the world, do it here too. Do not pass us by. And thank you so much for what you have done among us. And continue to help us to trust you and, and, and give wisdom to each person here. Thank you for the saints here. So give wisdom to them on how they can serve in your mission. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.